the weekend variety wireless. Good evening, everybody, and a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Thank you for doing that. Do spread the word. It all helps. I'll remind you now, there's the Facebook page, and thanks heaps, you people on Facebook, leaving messages and emailing from the web page as well, uh, suggesting things, giving us a heads up during the week, stuff for media stick, things to do, including... Uh, this idea we had of getting luminaries and getting them to read a poem that they love and telling us why they think it's hot. It was such a success last week. We're taking a break this week. Uh, Stephen Braunius will be next off the rank for next Sunday. He was going to be doing it this Sunday, but um, things conspired. All right, fingers crossed he'll be on next Sunday and we'll continue the Read Me a Poem series. Glenn Harper's walking us through the last days of World War One. For Jesus, make it stop. Uh, that will be later this hour. But next up, the inimitable John Dipvick and his letter from America. Good evening, everybody. Oh, and have a great Labor weekend if you're not working tomorrow. I know some people are. Travesty, isn't it, on Labor Day? Weekend Variety Wireless. Here he comes, least qualified guy. The U.S. is the least qualified guy. <laughs> well, look what they are doing today. Yes, yes, this guy is telling us it's better for U.S. to shut up. Hey, <laughs> shut up! No, I... we will not! No, you <laughs> shall not shut up. You will not shut up. No. Uh, America, the leader of the free world. Or is that Liechtenstein now? I don't probably, know. Probably Liechtenstein would be good. Yeah. Give, All it right. to, give it to somebody else. <laughs> All right. Uh, first up, the 15th Amendment. Yeah, uh, the I, 14th comes to mind. The second and the first come to mind. All the time. The 15th, this was, um, this was you know, during the Civil War. Right. This after, is the amendment to the Constitution. Yeah, right after the Civil War. And naturally, the, the slaves were freed and whatnot. And so I just want to read a little paragraph here because we're talking about voting rights in America. Because mm -hmm. it... It is a rite of passage. It's not a gift, a privilege, or anything else. It's a right. And the 15th Amendment states, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Wow. Okay. So it's a right. And just, you know... The Unless you're in jail or something. Even in jail now, they're, some, you know, they're fighting and some, of the, some states let uh, felons um, vote. Okay. Yeah. But even, uh, but, you know, I'm not talking about the rights of vote and the Republican Party are constantly trying to purge the polls and, and just another county in, um, mm. in Georgia is being sued because they're just, they're just throwing out um, ballots. And A completely separate issue. I'm not saying, oh, look over there. Um, to try and diminish how bad that is. Yeah. But, gosh, not a lot of people turn up in the states to vote anyway, do they? No, no, it's very low. Uh, and particularly the midterms are, are extremely low because there's no president, you know, big name on the thing. Right, it's not so much of a circus. I think this, this midterm will be a lot higher because Trump is going around campaigning and telling people that his name is on the ballot, even though it's not. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, vote for the Republicans is to vote for him. Mm. So that'll be higher. And in extreme, you know, two, two areas that are extremely difficult, uh, you know, young people, 
young people just do not vote, and Latinos just don't vote. Latinos, and you know, I was I was watching one congressional uh, district race in um, Nevada, which has a large uh, Latino. Uh, population because of the gambling and all the casinos and stuff. They, they seem to, um, to a lot of times filtrate towards that work. And this one woman was saying that, you know, nobody from this person's, the re- Democrats' uh, camp has called anybody or knocked at any doors of Latinos. And you go, well, you know, how the hell can you expect them to vote for you if you don't go out there and, you know, try and get their vote? Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think th- I think this one will be quite heavy because uh, because of Trump. Because you know the the other side, he is kind of newsy. Yeah, he's he's you know he's hogging all the headlines yeah. in, in a negative way, and um, you know even Michael Cohen, his personal attorney who was a Republican now is registered as a Democrat, has come out and said that you know you, you got to vote in November to otherwise you have know, six more years of this craziness. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. Uh, now gibberish. <laughs> That's Trump. That that's Trump. That, oh that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. That's all he talks is gibberish. I want to just give you two examples. He's okay. talked. He's talked because later on we'll we'll continue with the gibberish. But you know, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, claimed a Native American ancestry, and you know, personally, I don't really care one no. way or the other. It doesn't bother me no. one way or the other. But she claimed that Trump is making fun of her all the time, calling her Pocahontas. And so he said, you know, if she takes a DNA test, he would give a million dollars to charity. Okay, so she took a DNA test, and she's got like one one thousandths of a percentage of, you know, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. So she called him on it, and then a reporter said, "Well, you're gonna you're gonna donate the million dollars now." And he goes, "No, nah, I never said that." No. <laughs> and, then uh-huh. you, and then you look at the tape, and there he is saying it, and yeah. then he goes, "No, nah, I never said that." Then Michael Cohen is really being grilled now by the Southern District of New York prosecutors and the Mueller prosecution team. Mm. And they're talking about the $130,000, the Stormy Daniels payment of the the porn star that he, he bonked while, you know, whatever. And um, Trump goes, no, nah, I, never, I never did that. No, that's a lie. And then you hear the audio tape of Trump talking to Cohen about the $130,000 payment and how it's going to be facilitated. And so... The guy's crazy. Any other person, you would just say, okay, got to take him away, put him away. Where's the 25th Amendment, folks? The 25th Amendment states that if a president is not able to conclude his duties in a reasonable, insane manner, mm. then they can replace him. And this guy it is takes a, comp- a lot to do, though, doesn't it? I can see the point. You could make a case, but you could really make a case. Oh, I mean, well, LBJ went nuts. Yeah, they all gotta go nuts, but not this. You don't look at a tape of a guy saying something and then the guy saying, "I didn't say that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that just that, that's absurd. But anyway, I did not. Say that. Have sex with that woman. <laughs> Sexual <laughs> relations with that woman. But so you know, you okay, go. okay, you want to talk about that. Now yeah. I read about this, a little bit about that. And Jeremy Wells, is it Jeremy Wells? Which one? Jeremy no, not the not your guy. It's not Wells anyways. Jeremy God, I forget. He's the number one Corbett. No, he's the number one porn guy in the world. Oh, you know, he's a he's he's a real porn guy. Okay. And I and he said it and a couple other people in this article said that oral sex is not sexual relations. If you give somebody a blowjob, that doesn't mean you have sexual relations with Who that says? Person. That's what he said. I'm just saying I'm going to the I'm going to a porn source. This guy's the number one porn guy. Well, he, is that a qualification? 
I'd go with Seinfeld. It was the most. Ele- it was probably written by Larry David. Yeah. And it was one of these beautiful little quiet conversations in the background, really, of the main theme of the Seinfeld episode. Yeah. And I think it was Elaine asking Jerry Seinfeld. They were having this very discussion. When is it actually sex? <laughs> and Jerry might have been chewing on a sandwich, just turned around and calmly said, the first appearance of the nipple. <laughs> there you go. I think that's the most accurate I've heard. Yep, yep, that would light your button. The first appearance of the nipple. <laughs> now that's on the female side of things. There um, you go. Uh, so there you go. Anyway. <laughs> I'm buying that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds All right. good to me. All right. So um, there was something else I was going to say on top of that. I need a pen. Oh, who cares? Um, only one guy. Only one guy. Okay, now we're talking about the Jamal Kasagi episode. This mm-hmm. is the um, Saudi... Uh, oh, God, Saudi, yes, yeah. Saudi man that's a resident in America and writes a column for the uh, Washington Post. Three, uh, three and a half, four weeks ago, he went into the consulate, uh, Saudi consulate in um, Istanbul, and never came out again. And for three weeks... It was Ankara, wasn't it? Or was it Istanbul? It was Istanbul. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. And for three weeks, the, the Saudi official said he walked out. He left. He's alive. Mm. We have known nothing about it. And now, all of a sudden, because all the evidence pointed, because they had... F- tape of 15 guys landing on Saudi jets, going into the consulate, coming out with heavy suitcases and disappearing again. Jeez. And they have audio tape of them slicing off his fingers and torturing him. Now, all of a sudden, the Saudis have come out and said that, well, yeah, he is dead. He's dead. And he got into a fight. It was an accident. He got into a fight. He got into a fight with 15... Here you have a pudgy, 60-year-old Saudi man got into a fight with 15 assassins. He's feisty. Uh, You know. And the thing is, before this, before they let anybody into the consulate, you saw cleaners going in with buckets of bleach. Uh Then when they got into the consulate, finally, after two and a half weeks, it was freshly painted. Uh And you just go, this is the biggest cover-up. And who's the only guy? The whole world has said bullshit. I mean, absolute bullshit. And the whole world said this. No, except for Qatar, um, United Arab Emirates, Emirates, Pakistan. But only, no, only one guy's publicly Kuwait. come out and agreed with it. Yeah. And that's the orange one. No, he's saying, no, it's, it's, it's looking bad. No, 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 no. That's not what he said the first time. No. They said, they said do, you think, do you find that story credible? Yeah. He said, I do, I do. Mm. That's what he said. That's a quote. So you can try and make up all this bullshit because after he said, I do, I do, then he started getting more pressure from everybody else saying, you know, listen, dickhead, Mm. you can't say that. Now he's come out and said, well, you know, I still have some reservations. Has he just reacted to more evidence that's come forth? No, there hasn't been any more evidence. That's their story. You know, the thing is that really bugs me with this, more than bugs, uh, it pees me off. Um, The Saudis do worse than this of a weekend in Saudi Arabia. Sure. And nobody bats a freaking eyelid. No, no. And how about the war in Yemen? Which we we are supplying them with massive arms, and they're killing civilians like it's popcorn. I mean, they're not There were people given lashes yesterday in Saudi prisons as part of a 20... No, before they killed them. A a death sentence for um, 
saying, I don't think um, I believe in Muhammad anymore. That's it. That death sentence. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I know it's a, it's a brutal dictatorship. But Try being gay. But we're, we're cozied up to him. Yeah. We're cozied up to him. Can we just have, I'd love to see a leader stand up and say, this is not good enough for yeah. our fellow human beings. Yeah. And um, these people are extremely powerful and privileged. Yeah. Are you prepared to take a little bit of a hit to see it to see something change we're not even close to that pat robertson who is a spiritual leader in america oh he's just glad they believe in a god yeah, well you know he well he's just come out and said that one man isn't worth 110 million billion dollars for the arms sales yeah, it's not one man though that was my bugbear oh, oh i know but he is kind of the spearhead of this now because he was yeah. a, a columnist and yeah and you know from the washington post and stuff but you know and the, and the as i was saying earlier though the turks will be laughing they'll say god that's, oh. that's not how you get rid of a journalist yeah. here's how you get rid of a journalist yeah exactly you, get him over here, you shoot yeah. him in the head yeah. yeah keep it under wraps yeah yeah, yeah yeah we've done this hundreds of times amateurs but the worst thing even beyond that is trump just does it because it involves dollars all he's interested in is the money. Oh, and it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. Not Look, the, he's not the only president to worry about no, Saudi American money. No, but it's personal with him. It's very personal. He has personal interest in because his hotels would be going under right now if it wasn't for the Saudis going there every time they come to America. They spend large at his hotels. Yeah. And that's only one part. They got tons of business deals with this guy. And the thing is, the $110 billion is bullshit. It's not 110. The Saudis have only spent $14 billion on arms. All the rest are promissory notes to look into possibly buying stuff from the United States. It's not a done deal. And most of those deals were done under the Obama administration. Trump's got nothing to do with it. He's a classic dickhead trying to take credit for something that somebody else did all the time. I know they hassled Yemen every now and again, but... Really? Do they what are they doing with all these planes and? Oh, uh, they, they really got a. Oh, they're worried about Iran. Yeah, Iran's the whole the whole key to this they're whole. The thing. bad guys. Yeah. In Saudi's yeah. eyes. Yeah. And everybody else, who doesn't believe what they believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of with you. You know, we you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt met with met with the king in the 40s. You know, during the war, and that's where we formed our alliance. We've had a long history of alliance with Saudi Arabia. And you're probably right at this time, you know, say, hey, sorry, this is too far. Yeah, we're going to take, take a stand. If you don't like it, tough petition shit. Petition the people and go on television. Look, barrel down the camera yeah. and say, are you with us to do something about this? Yeah. No. All right. Don't let them have a stranglehold on yeah. so much. Yeah, which they do. Okay, 17% is what? That's, that's... Now, when tr Trump did his tax cut earlier last year um he said it was going to create jobs and reduce the deficit mm -hmm. mitch mcconnell the leader of the, of the senate the majority leader said this tax bill is going to reduce the deficit paul ryan the speaker of the house said this tax bill is going to reduce the deficit well guess what folks that was all bullshit because the deficit has risen 17% over $115 billion since Trump's been in office, and it's going to keep going up because the tax bill cut off a trillion dollars of debt from uh, of revenue from going into the government and gave it to the corporations and the top 1% to 
of the rich Americans. Um, but unemployment's basically a background noise level now. That means business is going well. That means yeah. businesses will be paying tax in but the next cycle. No, no, no. The, 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 well, they will the, the trillion dollars. You, you've taken out a trillion dollars of revenue. And the, the benefits that those corporations and the businesses got... They put into benefits for themselves. They gave themselves bonuses. They are quite good at getting around this, aren't they? Yeah, they didn't give anything to to, to increase the business thing. And if you're talking about the, the unemployment now, just another stat: there's um, seven million jobs open up in America, and less than you know three and a half percent of people look. There are more jobs than people looking for jobs. And guess where we need people? Oh, you should get some people we, from Mexico. We need the immigrants yeah, to come in immigrants. and take those goddamn jobs. That also is an anchor on the economy because you got more jobs. You don't have enough people to fill them, so you're not making any revenue. He's making America great again, isn't oh, he? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alice in Wonderland. Okay, this is, now this is, this is it, folks. This is, this is Trump and his administration and his whole thing. Alice in Wonderland. And, the, you know, it's the Mad Hatter Tea Party. His wife, Melania, has oh. this huge campaign about to be the best you can and stop cyberbullying. She goes around all the time talking about this. And then this week, Trump comes out and calls Stormy Daniels a horse face. Oh. He's the number one cyberbully guy in your own goddamn house, Melania. Yeah. He's the guy. She probably <coughs> tells him over dinner, stop doing stop that. Stop doing that, you bad guy. Donald's. Bad, I know. Bad Trump. And so he calls her a horse face, and then some other senators get involved in it, and they're cyberbullying. And you look at it and you go, is that, is that the American government now? We Twitter about stupid shit like yeah. that? And well, okay. That's us. That's but Alice you, in Wonderland, folks. You're not folks. fighting in Vietnam, though, and you're not <laughs> attacking Iraq. Yeah, good on us. Okay. Um, money, money, money. God, you know, I mean, you talk about spending money. The Democrats, and this is why I think the turnout will be higher in the midterms this year. Uh, on November 6th is when they, when they happen in about two or less than about two and a half weeks. Uh, they have raised just for this congressional races uh -huh. over a billion dollars and spent a billion. They're going to spend over a billion dollars on ads and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, it's just... It's just staggering the amount of money. I mean, when you're talking billions of dollars, you're talking presidential races, not congressional oh, okay. and district races at all. I mean, mm -hmm. not at all. This is all time. This is like out-of-control money that these people are, are, are spending on, you know, and it's just, it just goes to show you what, you know, I mean, elections in America are a different animal to anywhere else in the world. I mean, it's, it's, there's so How do you many... spend that much money? <laughs> Why don't, for, for all the Republicans' attempts to stymie a turnout, the Democrats could basically give everybody, everybody. a taxi. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just get a yeah. It's not paying them to vote. Just, get, just Uber, say, get Uber. Get Uber out there. Got a taxi. It's on us. This is the password. Yeah. It's easy if you give everyone a special little password. Yeah. yeah. Taxi. Yeah. Taxi to vote. Yeah. Taxis lined up outside everywhere, South Central LA. <laughs> if they'll go there. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but you can imagine. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to put it in context, the, the number of programs and other things you could do with that money. Mm. That would make more sense to me yeah. than spend, you know, spending it on the 6th District in the suburb of Chesterfield, Pennsylvania. Uh, coming up next, we've got 
uh, part four of Jesus Make It Stop, World War One, where the Yanks came and kind of saved the day a bit <laughs> in the end. In the end, certainly yeah. helped. You yeah. certainly helped in World War One. But Woodrow Wilson, huge part in that. Yeah. And we forget how strongly he was anti-imperial, get rid of your empires, yeah. give up those places, everybody is self-determination. Yeah, League of Nations, just, yeah. Yeah, it was so strongly yeah. on that. Yeah. We, we kind of forget it. Yeah, and he was, um, I don't know what he was, uh, the uh, president of Princeton or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're really down on him. Apparently, he had a lot of um, racist uh, views on things. All right. <laughs> he, I, yeah, that's right. He was the one that um, he saw the that famous Ku Klux Klan movie. Yep. And he said, oh, it was marvellous. Learned <laughs> a lot. And he was also uh, the last president, I think, that looked like he should wear a top hat. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. He, had, he had those glasses. Yeah. And a little, yeah, no, definitely. Didn't work for Harding. Didn't, <laughs> didn't work for Calvin Coolidge. Nah, he was the last one that looked proper in a top hat. Anyway, John, well, thank I'm glad we solved that. Yeah. <laughs> These are the important issues this evening. John Divick's Letter from America, thank you. Jesus, make it stop. Part two after the commercial break. The Weekend Variety Wireless. At dawn, the ridge emerges, massed and done, in the wild purple of the glowering sun, smouldering through spouts of drifting smoke that shroud the menacing scarred slope. And one by one, tanks creep and topple forward to the wire. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of gray, muttering faces masked with fear, they leave their trenches, going over the top, while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists. And hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Jesus, make it stop as we are taken through the death throes of World War I, what was happening a hundred years ago each week, leading up to the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, which saw mercifully at long last the end of the conflict although it wasn't quite and we'll cover that at the time but glenn harper from massey university military historian has written many books on this subject do check him out um thanks for being with us again uh pleasure graham this week october the 21st if you knew what was going to happen you would be going oh goodness it's nearly over but a lot of people really didn't know if it was going to be the germans aren't in a good state and there are communications between woodrow wilson and the enemy powers shall we say mm -hmm. um just one thing i noticed glenn that happened this week just reading through a little potted history something about british troops from vladivostok reaching Irkutsk in Siberia. 
Now, the Russians have been out of this war. They've got their own problems with their civil war and a revolution happening. What is this? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. They've been out of the war since the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in, in March 1918. But they have a civil war with the um, with the communist powers, the Red Russians fighting against the reactionary forces, the forces of the Tsar and the, and the people who want to restore the monarchy and don't want a communist Soviet Union, and uh, the White Russians. And um, several of the Allied powers send troops up to Russia to help assist the white Russians in their struggle against the Reds and the British send, uh, send a number of troops and you know, they send a few thousand including I have to say several Australians and New Zealanders who are serving with the British forces but they won't be the only ones. There will be forces from France sent, there will be forces from Japan as well and they're all trying to assist the whites overthrow the overthrow the communists, overthrow the Red Russian. Soviet Union doesn't happen and it, it's quite protracted and the fighting there will continue after the signing of the armistice. All right. So uh, we did tip our toes when I say we, the Allied forces, into this conflict. Yeah, we did, but not not in any large numbers. We were primarily providing um, hard equipment like armoured cars and railway experts and artillery. Um, so the numbers were always quite small and they were never going to tip the balance or anything, but they were certainly there to assist the whites uh, and hopefully overthrow the, this communist takeover of Russia. Now the negotiations are underway. President Wilson, he replies to the Austro-Hungarians. How were communications made in those days? We had telegraph, but uh, yeah. in an area of conflict, it's often hard to get messages th through with any uh, speed or efficiency. Absolutely, and very hard for the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians because the uh, very first act of war that the that the British Navy had done was actually haul up their cables and cut them, haul up the transatlantic cables and cut connections to Germany. So uh, it was quite difficult, but they were sent what they were calling diplomatic notes, and they usually went uh, out through a neutral country like Holland. They would, and it was quite easy for Germany and Austro-Hungary to get people over through through to Holland and link up with a neutral country and use their diplomatic wires and, and so forth. And uh, yes, they're negotiating with, Aus with uh, Austro-Hungary, but this is also the date, October the 20th, actually, that the Germans reply to Woodrow Wilson's earlier note um, and expressing that they weren't very happy with it and pleading for, for better terms. So that note is received by the United States Secretary of State on the 20th of October 1918, just over 100 years ago. So the terms that they didn't like mm. can we describe what they were it's like you get the message and they go what well they're not very happy that they that um they want to deal with uh with democratically elected politicians as opposed to uh imperial generals and and the kaiser and um in fact uh the germans uh indicate that they're actually moving steadily toward democracy hoping that the americans are going to be treating them somewhat more liberally than britain and france so they're saying look things are changing and we're getting there, um, but uh, Woodrow Wilson's not fooled by this and actually says, well, we, before we uh, can talk seriously, the military has to hand over their power and we want to deal with elect elected representatives, not with the Kaiser and certainly not with any of the military generals. All right. Now, this Austro-Hungarian Empire, they mm -hmm. were the strong allies of Germany, but... Mm. There was that famous German line, I can't recall exactly how it went, uh, something along the lines of, we're tied to a corpse. Yep. The attitude of Germany to w the Austro-Hungarian Empire now. 
Um, well, it's uh, realised that uh, Austro-Hungary is not the great powerful ally they thought it was going to be, and that uh, phrase being that it was like being shackled to a corpse was said by um, a German general, Max Hoffmann, back in 1914, and uh, he was quite right. The Austro-Hungarian army um, and military forces do not equip themselves well in this war. In fact, they struggle against all the enemies they face. They struggle against the Russians. They struggle against the Serbs, they struggle against the Italians and in each time the Germans have to send forces from the west to bail them out again and again and they do that against the Russians, they do that against the, Serbia, the Serbians in 1915 and Austro-Hungary thought that was going to be a walkover taking out, taking Serbia out at the end of 1914 and 15 but found it actually much tougher and also they thought you know they could deal with the Italians but they found that a tough uh, struggle as well, particularly in the Alpine uh, areas that they were fighting and in each case the Germans had to send forces to assist the Austro-Hungarians to push back and defeat the Russians to actually push the Serbs out of their country in a long bloody campaign and also to deal the Italians a catastrophic defeat at Caporetto at the end of 1917 so Hoffman was quite right it was like being shackled to a corpse and the Germans had to bail them out each time and that seriously weakened the forces they could put into play on the western front. So there is, on October the 21st, 1918, there is an Austro-Hungarian Empire? Uh, well, there's, there's not much of it left um, because um, their army, which has been particularly bad because of commanders and also the fact that it's made up of many ethnic minorities and those ethnic minorities aren't too happy to be fighting for an empire that is crumbling and an empire to which they don't belong. And in 1918, the empire's falling apart part. Um, I think last week we covered the fact that the Poles had announced their independence and the creation of an independent Polish state. Well, this week it's the turn of the Czechoslovakians to do that. And they announced a declaration of independence as well, which means that, you know, the Czech uh, and Slovak uh, soldiers in the Austro-Hungarian armies aren't going to be fighting for too much longer. In fact, they'll take the first opportunity to lay down their arms and, and go home to what has been declared as a separate independent nation. And it will get recognition at the Treaty of Versailles as well. Right. And in New Zealand, I suppose we just have one nominal piece of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Franz Joseph Glacier. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, uh, yes, uh, although we have many um, people who came out to get away from that empire with Dalmatians and, and so forth, so uh, and, and, uh, so and, and a few Slavs as well. So uh, you know they do come out here. There is we do have a legacy to the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Ah, so many of the vineyards yeah. uh, throughout New Zealand at this time a result of this conflict as well. Mm, yep, and people wanting to get away from the empire. Yeah. Now, the notes that President Wilson somehow gets to uh, the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans mm -hmm. um, outlining terms for a ceasefire, an mm -hmm. armistice, um, were they exactly the same? Uh, no, you know, he would, they were the same. He wanted to deal with a democratic country and he wants them to give up any lands that they're occupying and also to recognise that the, the, the national self-determination of individual peoples, uh, which isn't great news for the Austro-Hungarians, I, I have to say, because their empire was made up of all these subjugated people who are now wanting to be liberated and look to Wilson as the great liberator for enunciating those 14 points. So he's dealing with them pretty much 
the same, although I have to say his attitudes to Germany are far harsher because they were the ones that have been implementing unrestricted submarine warfare and do so for, since uh, the beginning of 1917. And one of the terms that he wants uh, and insists upon with the, with the Germans is that they stop so that, that unrestricted submarine warfare and that indeed all German U-boats should be recalled to their ports and that the one thing that they must not do anymore is actually shoot up uh, lifeboats, which some of their captains have been doing. Uh, the Germans actually protest against that, say, well, we actually don't do that and it's not our policy, but we will we will end unrestricted submarine warfare and we will recall our U-boats back. And they do that in this week, actually. They, they recall their U-boats back to port. Ah, uh, so... Were they telling the truth? Do we know that they weren't shooting up lifeboats, which seems to be an utterly despicable thing to do? Some of the U-boat captains had done that, and some of the U-boat captains had deliberately sunk hospital ships as, as well. Not all of them, but there were a few fanatics who did that. And, of course, as the war is going on, they're getting more and more desperate, and that's seen in some of their behaviours. So some of the, the U-boat captains did, but, but certainly not the majority. And Wilson strikes me as someone quite enthusiastic, probably tapping into the mm. foundation and the constitution of the United States of America, an enthusiasm for self-determination, very mm. anti-imperialist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's going to be the dominant figure at the Treaty of Versailles in um, the first uh, few months of 1919. And very very dedicated to actually achieving self-determination for those nations that have been subjugated, but also very, very keen to establish a League of Nations where people, where countries come together and talk over disputes and resolve uh, disputes uh, peacefully so there'll be no more great wars. Um, so, yeah, very much a leading figure, a leading statesman, and will become even more so in the first six months of 1919. New Zealanders and Australians. Goodness mm. me, we're Anzacs, we're brothers and sisters, I think, Lo. So let's talk about what we were doing, New Zealanders and Australians at this time. OK, well, the, the, the short answer to that is, is not a lot this week. Um, the New Zealanders had been relieved on the 14th of October after being involved in pushing the Germans back to the Sal River. Um, they were being rested this week and they would be rejoining that battle in its closing stages and from there they would push the Germans right back to the town of Lekenwa, um in early November. So they, they basically have been relieved for, from the, the front lines, uh, resting and recuperating and we put back into the lines um, early at the following week. Um, the AIF, the Australian Imperial Force, it's a different story because for most of them the war was over. They'd been involved in the 100 days and been at the forefront of the attacks that the 4th Army did from the 8th of August, that black day, right through to September. They'd been intimately involved with the breaching of the Hindenburg Line. They'd carried out an attack near Peron at a place called Monson Quinton, which one commander regarded as the finest feat of the whole war. But at the end of September, they basically run out of men. Um, the average infantry battalion of the AIF was down to 300 men when it should have been something like 900, so almost a third of their strength. Their last significant action of the AIF would be on the 5th of October in an attack at a village called, called Montprahan. And after that, they were withdrawn to rest and refit. Some of their artillery units remained in the line. The squadrons of the Flying Corps, the Australian Flying Corps, stayed but they would basically, the AIF was 
out of the war from now on and they're still resting and refitting up until the armistice because they've just run out of men and they've, they've, of course they haven't been able to introduce conscription in Australia despite two attempts by referenda to do so. So half of the young men of Australia have joined up but half do not and they just don't have the numbers to replace their losses. So for them, for the AIF, for most of the Australian soldiers, the war is actually over from the 5th of October. All right. Any Australians listening? Hats off to you and a handshake across the Tasman as well. Absolutely. I mean, the AIF has played a critical role and basically they've fought themselves to exhaustion, really. Yeah. None of the stats for, you know, especially, you know, small countries like New Zealand and smallish populations like Australia, the mm-hmm. stats are dreadful for the amount of casualties per head of population. But there is one nation that was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, that is just off the scale. You've got to say, with respect to the others, it is fresh air second. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Serbia, what they endured? that They ceased to exist and then came back during World War One. What happened to them and how were they feeling on October the 21st? Um, well, they're, they're somewhat relieved. You're absolutely right. In terms of... Um of casualties per capita, uh, Serbia holds the record from the from the First World War, and it's easy to see why. Um, Serbia was that uh, little independent country that Austria-Hungary was determined to crush in 1914, and they'd used that assassination of uh, Franz Ferdinand as an excuse to do so. They'd invaded Serbia in early 1914, but had been pushed out, and the Serbs put up a magnificent campaign against them. However, the Austro-Hungarians had their ally then come in to help them. Uh, that some some German armies were sent across to, to help them. And in 1915, the whole of Serbia was overrun and the Serbian army had to retreat out of Serbia and basically uh, take up positions in, in, in northern Greece around Salonika. It, were, it was... Was it not also the population followed them as well because they were fearing just slaughter? Absolutely, many of the population did, absolutely, and many of them perished on, on the march out of Serbia. Those that remained, uh, the, the, the population remained and were treated really, really harshly by this occupying power. And then, of course, the Bulgarians have, have joined in and occupied the country, and the, it, is the, it is the forces of Bulgaria that the uh, Serbians and, and the French and British and around Salonika spend up most of the time fighting. Uh, and it's a long, protracted campaign where they're in Salonika for almost uh, for just over three years it's a terrible place to be conditions are dreadful malaria is rife in fact more uh, soldiers are, are killed during this period from disease than from fighting and that campaign lasts until September uh, 19 of this year September 1918 when they're finally able to carry out a major offensive against the Bulgarians and defeat them and the Bulgarians surrender at the end of September and the Serbians uh, along with their allies are on the march back to real liberate their homeland but boy it has been a long tough road to get to that point and they have suffered extraordinary casualties not just amongst their army but also amongst their civilians and population as well. Yeah a quarter of their entire population and mm. if you want to look at it for the male population I think it's something like 65 percent. Incredible uh, figures for a, for such a small country too. Yeah that would still cast its shadow today over Serbia, not only in its demographics, but its collective memory, wouldn't it? 
Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. In fact, that whole region is is devastated by the by the war, and of course, um, they are also involved in the Second World War. And uh, once again, some of these um, hostilities between the various races of Yugoslavia comes to the fore. Um, it is a um, they do have a tragic history, and it goes right back to the start of the First World War. Just wanting to correct that stat: sixty um, percent of its male population. <laughs> As if that's really much better. Yeah. Uh, and 29% of its overall population. That is really an outlier from World War One, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's uh, as I say, they, they hold that dubious distinction of the highest per capita uh, casualty rate for the First World War, and they've suffered horrendously during it. And outside of the region, not uh, it's not a fact that's well known. In fact, you know, when you think of the First World War, um, the uh, campaign around Salonika and the country of Serbia are often way to the back of people's memories. So who occupies Belgrade, their capital? On October the twenty-first, the Serbs are, are on their are on their way, um, and they're pushing out the remnants of the Austro-Hungarian forces and 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 some Germans. This is the start of the liberation of actually uh, three countries: Serbia, Albania, and Montenegro. Um, all countries in, in the Balkans, and they're steadily pushing the Germans out. They liberate various towns, um, and though they eventually they eventually get to Belgrade. Gosh, it's such a last-minute thing. We're just at the last four weeks of this affair. Absolutely, but there's more action to come, um, you know, and uh, later on down the track we'll talk about what's happening in Italy. Um, but, uh, but I have to say the main action is once again on the Western Front, which is the decisive, decisive theatre of the war. Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruges is reoccupied this week as well, and that's an amazing thing in as much as when you think of how much it was previously just a static mincing machine. Bruges isn't that far away, but they're in Belgium. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, it's uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, this is uh, the actions in the in the northern portion of the Western Front, where the uh, Belgian army is is attacking, along with so- some uh, French and British divisions. And in the north, the offensive begins at a place called Courtrai, now known as Courtrai, on the 14th of October. And boy, do they get going! It's it's amazing, you know, because they've struggled for over patches of gra- of a few thousand yards, you know, with massive casualties. They start the offensive on the 14th October and on that day they advance five miles and they keep going. By the 18th of October the Belgians have reoccupied the Channel port so they've got Zeebrugge and captured the Channel coast and they push on and capture Bruges. Um, it's you know it's just an amazing feat considering that there's been stalemate stagnation and they've been locked into the front line trenches for over three years and we're starting from on the 14th of October they start advancing and keep going until they're liberating these these big towns. The Belgian um, success with, liber- uh, with the liberation of Bruges and freeing up the Channel ports was only part of the action that was happening on the Western Front. In the central uh, section, the BEF renews its offensive and crosses the Sal River. That's the British the Expeditionary Force? British Expeditionary Force, yep. And on the 18th of October, which is this week, they liberated the city of Lille, which is the second largest city in France. It's been under occupation, German occupation, for four years, and the citizens are absolutely ecstatic. There's some wonderful photographs of the citizens coming out and presenting the soldiers with flowers and, and wine. And, uh, and it really is an important symbol that the end is coming. The second largest city in France has been liberated after after nearly four years of occupation. And in the south, the French 
and the US uh, Army start a major offensive around the Meuse-Argonne region. There are now two new American armies in the field, the 1st US Army and the 2nd US Army. They suffer very heavy casualties, but they break through the German lines and get to the third and final line, and that attack actually absorbs the very last German reserve. So uh, basically all across the Western Front, the, uh, from the north down to the south, there's offensive action happening, and the Germans are, are on the back foot and can find no answer to these offensives and some of these big places that have been under occupation for so long are finally being liberated. It's the, it is the symbol that the end is coming. And another frightening reminder of that um, the end is coming about because nations are spent of men. Even you mentioned Australia and of course uh, the horrific Serbian stats. Absolutely. Well, the, most of the nations that have been involved in the war from the start are running out of men. The British have called up the up young boys uh, as young as 18. The Germans have put boys of, of 16 and 17 into the field. The only army that has an, enough men and has just done warm up is the US Army. But that has only just started to fight on the Western Front. It has a lot to learn, and as it's learning, it's also suffering very, very heavy casualties. So yes, uh, there's no there are no cheap victories on the Western Western Front, even towards the end in 1918. Flynn Harper, historian at Massey University, thanks so much for this and another instalment next week as we follow the final weeks leading to armistice on November the 11th, 1918. It will be 100 years ago on that particular Sunday this year. Just an addendum, very shortly, we're going to be hearing the tale from Jared Hindmarsh about another outsider or shall we say an outstander, William Sanders, a VC in World War I. Do you know much about him? Uh, I know a little bit about him, and he's very important in New Zealand's military history. He's the only naval person to be awarded the Victoria Cross, so an important person in our military history. Stay tuned for that. Glenn Harper, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Graham. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. We've made a little archive for Glenn Harper's series these last weeks of World War I. Goodness me, he's got the information, hasn't he? I think you can tell it's all in his head. Uh, Glenn Harper, wonderful. Uh, history professor at Massey University. So go and avail yourself of those stories, all the action and the misery still ongoing ahead of Armistice on November the 11th. After new sport and weather, as suggested, uh, with Glenn Harper, or alluded to, shall we say, a tale from World War I. Uh, new Zealand's Victoria Cross recipient, our only maritime one, I understand, yeah, from World War I. William Edward Sanders. It's news time. It's 11 o'clock. <laughs>